The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. It's a privilege to be with you and to bring God's word to you. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm grateful for lots of tea and lozenges. And I'm going to turn this morning to Ephesians chapter 4. As we look at Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to spend our time considering a few verses here that are sort of an instruction manual for the church. Now, you know what an instruction manual is. An instruction manual is meant to, to guide us in using a, pro, a product. It tells us how to put a product together. It tells us what to expect from a product. It's, it tells us how it's supposed to operate, what its goal is, how it should be used, and, and how it shouldn't be used. And of course, I, like many men, have a bit of a storied history with instruction manuals. I was thinking back to the time when I purchased my first gas grill. I'd had a number of uh, times when I was just longing to grill, and so when I got our first grill, all I wanted to do was get the grill set up. And the box was sitting on the back porch, and we had 45 minutes before we were supposed to leave to go to someone's house for dinner. But I said to my wife, I said, I'm going out to set my grill up because I want it available the first time I get a chance to use it. So I went out, and I ripped open the box, and I pulled the instruction manual out, and there's a big black letters on the front that say assembly time required two to three hours. I thought, well, surely that's like the worst case scenario, college jock who never owned Legos sort of assembly time. I'll be able to whip through this in 30 minutes, no problem. And it turns out, of course, that it was a good thing we were going to someone else's house for dinner because I think I just barely squeaked under the three hour mark the following day. That's just one of several experiences that have led me to emphasize to my son, always follow the instructions. Well, that should be our mindset when we turn to Ephesians 4. Because Paul has spent the first several chapters in Ephesians laying out the glorious truths of the gospel and what God has done through Jesus Christ in our lives. But when he gets to chapter 4, he begins there by saying, I therefore urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And over the next three chapters of Ephesians, there are many different areas of life that Paul's going to look at and tell us how to walk worthy of our calling. But here today, I want to look at verses 7 through 16 of chapter 4, where Paul zeroes in on the life of the church and lays out for us a pattern of ministry, an instruction manual, if you will, for how the church is to operate in order for it to grow and mature into what God intends it to be. And since this is not only an instruction manual, but a divinely inspired instruction manual, we should give it our careful attention. Let's read Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. All right, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, 
What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, that is the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. God, our Father, we're so grateful to you for giving us your word. What a blessing it is to have the revealed words of God with us and in front of us. And I pray that your spirit would use your words to speak to us, to work in us, to equip us to be the people that you intend us to be this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When our passage begins here this morning in verse 7, Paul has just spent the first six verses of this chapter emphasizing the unity that God's people should have. He's talked about bearing with one another in humility and patience, maintaining a bond of peace that is fitting for the church, that's united in one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But after emphasizing the unity that the church should have, Paul now comes to verse 7 where he emphasizes the difference or the diversity that's evident within the body of Christ. You see in verse 7 that Paul argues that each person, not some people, not particular people, but each person, each and every person in the church has been given grace, has been given grace according to the measure of Christ. This is grace that's given to us. It's not an identical grace. It's not a grace that each of us receives in the exact same way. It's a varied grace, a manifold grace that each person receives according to the measure of Christ's gift. And I think Paul here in verse 7 is saying something similar to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4.10, where Peter says, as each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied or manifold grace. In other words, within the church, God's people have a diversity of gifts that God has given to us and called us to use for the benefit of each other in the context of the church. But the question arises, well, what is this grace that we've been given? What are these gifts that God has given us? And, and I think it's important that we see that the gifts and the grace that Christ has given us are not merely the abilities that we have or the preferences that we have or the things that we were born with naturally uh, when, when we, uh, at birth. They have a particular importance and a particular role which Paul brings out by showing us the source of these gifts and also the purpose of these gifts in the following verses. So I want to look at, at both of those together. First, note the source of these gifts. The source of these gifts that God has given us is the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. 
They were given when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended as King and Lord of the church, rose, was glorified at the right hand of God the Father, when he poured out his Spirit on the church, giving gifts to his people. In verses 8 through 10, Paul explains this by quoting Psalm 68, 18. And this is important. In Psalm 68, the original context of the psalm is, is God describing the victories that he has won on behalf of his people. Psalm 68 discusses God leading Israel. And it mentions a number of events in Israel's history. It talks about God leading Israel out of Egypt in triumph. And then it, it talks about God leading Israel through the wilderness and defeating Israel's enemies in the wilderness. And then it talks about him leading Israel into to Canaan and the victories that he wins in bestowing the land on the people and finally culminating as, as God ascends onto Mount Zion as his, holy, as his holy dwelling place. Now Paul references this psalm about God's victories in order to demonstrate that Jesus' resurrection and ascension are part of God's victories over his enemies. Jesus' exaltation as Lord over all things, and the cross and the tomb are an extension of the, the victories God had won on behalf of his people in the Old Testament. And so the note of praise and confidence that Israel had in Psalm 68 as a result of its all-powerful, victorious God is also now our song of praise and our confidence because the exodus and the promised land and the Mount Zion and the victories God won there were wonderful preludes that were fulfilled by Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And you know, and you know what happens with a victorious king. And so you know the picture that God is painting here. When a, a king wins victories in the ancient world, he, he captures people and leads a, vic, a victory train, leading his captives in the victory train. And then he takes spoil. He captures all sorts of, of, of money and wealth and clothes and the spoil. And then he distributes that spoil amongst his people. And that's the picture that God is described as in Psalm 68 that Paul quotes here. God wins victories leads captives in his train, and then divides the spoil amongst his people. And so Paul's saying, Jesus Christ has won the victory. He's ascended on high, and now he's dividing spoil amongst his people. And that spoil is the gifts of grace that he distributes to each one of his people. And I think it's significant that Paul calls these gifts grace that we have received from Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not sure what first comes to your mind when you hear the word grace, but I think for most of us, when we hear the word grace, our minds immediately jump to something like God's undeserved favor. That, and when we think of God's undeserved favor, usually what we're thinking about is God reconciling us to himself and forgiving our sins, something we didn't deserve, but God by his grace has given us. And that's absolutely true. Our forgiveness of sins that we have in Christ is the cornerstone, a chief, a chief benefit of God's grace. But it's not the only thing that God's grace gives us. God's grace is so much bigger and broader and more comprehensively life-changing than only forgiving our sins. All the change that comes about in our lives as a result of the work of Christ is Christ's undeserved favor. And this is life, and it, this is the, the scope of God's grace moves throughout our entire lives. And so the idea here is that the gifts of grace that we have, we have 
by favor of Jesus Christ. And so think about it. Think about God's people using their gifts. What this means is that any time you see a believer in Christ drawing near to another believer and praying for them and encouraging them in their faith, or any time you see a believer volunteering in Sunday school or a vacation Bible school and, and teaching children the truths of Christ, or any time a believer leads a small group Bible study in their home, or any time a believer comes and comforts a hurting sibling in Christ or challenges and rescues a sinning brother or sister in Christ, we're displaying and enjoying undeserved favor of God. We're displaying the grace and the work of God in our lives. And this is such an encouragement to us. It's such an encouragement for us to be involved in each other's lives, to be, to be involved in the life of the church, and to be using our gifts on behalf of each other and for the benefit of their church. Because whenever a believer uses the gifts God has given them in the context of his people, it is a chance to receive and to use and to give grace from Jesus Christ in our lives. And it's not only a privilege for us, but it's also a testimony of Christ to those around us. Because what this means is that when we see these things happening, when we see believers using their gifts in the context of the church, we're witnessing something that is evidence of and only possible because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and ascended on high and given gifts to his people. In other words, we could say it this way. Jesus and his victory on the cross are the source of every gift that his people have. And he is the one who has given and is using all of our gifts for the benefit of the church. What a reason to rejoice in Christ Jesus and what he has done for us every time we interact with his people and every time we come together as a community of his people. Now, maybe this seems like a little bit of an unusual or bold claim because you think, well, all right, but, but many people have different abilities that they can use on behalf of someone else. I can be a good cook and I can cook a meal for someone else or I can be good at teaching and I can teach someone someone else. And is that, you know, it's clear that not everyone, including unbelievers, is using these in a way that's grace meant to build them up in Christ. So in what sense are our gifts really grace or undeserved favor from Jesus Christ? And I think this becomes clear in in verses 11 through 16, where Paul goes on to discuss the purpose of these gifts that God has given his people. In verse 11, Paul names a few specific gifts. He names apostles and prophets, evangelists, shepherds, which is also the word for pastors and teachers. And then Paul gives the reason for these gifts in verse 12. What is the reason that God has given these gifts to the church? According to verse 12, Christ has given gifts to each member of the church for the building up of the body. His goal is that the church as a whole should grow up and mature into what he intended it to be. Now, as we go down through verses 12 through 16, I want you to see how Paul is using the analogy of a body for how the church ought to grow. And any of you who have parented an infant or any of you who have maybe seen a younger sibling grow up from from infancy to adulthood, you can understand what it looks like for a human body to grow. A human body starts on day one of its life, defenseless, vulnerable, weak. That infant is clearly human, but often a little bit awkward looking. Certainly not clear what that person is going to look like or what its abilities are going to be. But as the body grows, 
It grows in size, in beauty, in its ability to make decisions, in its, in its, in its wisdom, in its abilities. It grows more and more to be who God created it to be. And that's the goal for the church as well, that it would grow from infancy up to be this mature body of Christ. That it w- and Paul lists in, in verses 13 and 14 especially different characteristics that the church should be growing in. If you look at these verses, you'll see Paul mention several ways that the church ought to be growing. The church ought to be growing in its knowledge of their Savior. You think about who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge dwell. He is the infinite God whom we can always be learning more and more about. The church ought to be growing in its knowledge of its Savior, Jesus Christ. The church ought to be growing more like Christ until they attain the stature of the fullness of Christ. As one commentator put it, the glorified Christ provides the standard which the body of Christ should be aiming towards. The corporate body of Christ cannot be content to fall short of the perfection of Christ himself. That's the goal that the church is growing towards, to be like Christ himself. And we think, well, my heavens, I, I don't think I've, I've made it very far because I'm not anywhere like the perfection of Jesus Christ. And of course not. A five-year-old or a seven-year-old shouldn't expect to have all of the growth and perfection and maturity that an adult would have. And the church also is waiting as it, as it grows towards its ultimate goal, toward the maturity that we will have when Christ appears and brings us to completion. But that's the goal. The knowledge of Jesus Christ. The stature of Jesus Christ. Paul also says that the church should be, be growing in maturity so that it is no longer tossed about like children. He says the church should no longer be tossed to and fro by cunning and deceit or winds of doctrine and ideas. The church should be steadily leaving behind immaturity and instability so that it might be grounded in the truth. In verse 15, Paul gives the final goal, that the church would grow up in him in every way who is the head, Jesus Christ. And I think this helps us understand why the gifts that Christ has given us are not just the natural abilities that we were born with. Of course, many people are good at different things or good at encouraging people. But Christ's grace is evident when he pours out his spirit and enables his people to use these abilities to do something they could never have done without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is this. When Christ rose from the grave and poured out his spirit on his people, He enabled his people to use these gifts to be part of changing and perfecting hearts and lives. He enabled his people to be part of the growth of the church into his likeness. And we only have to consider ourselves for a few seconds to realize that none of us would be capable of leading to change in other people's hearts and lives or leading other people to Christ's likeness unless Christ had graced us, unless Christ had poured out his spirit and enabled us to be part of that work. And so here's this, here's this amazing process. Here's this goal that Paul's instruction manual gives us. Christ has gained the victory and poured out gifts on each of his people so they might use them for the building up, encouraging, and maturing of the church. That's the goal and expectation. But if we're going to follow the instructions, we also need to make sure we don't miss some key little details. 
I was thinking about this as I thought more about instruction manuals in my life. I'm a, I'm a big board game player. And every year I try to get at least one or two new board games to play. And a few years ago, I had seen a board game that was reviewed and, and very popular. And so I decided to buy it. But I'd never seen it played. I'd never played it with anyone. So my only hope was to read the instruction manual and hope I could figure it out. I read that instruction manual over and over. I spent about two hours with this instruction manual, and I still could not figure out how to play this game. It did not make sense. And finally, I realized that the instruction manual was using two terms, the terms turn and round, differently than I thought they were. Well, that changed everything. Once I figured out what those two little words meant, the whole game made sense. Well, if we're going to understand Paul's instructions here, there are two small but essential details that we need to understand. The first essential detail involves who does ministry for the building up of the church. In verse 12, Paul says that pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. It is crucially important for us to notice that pastors and teachers and evangelists and church leaders are not the ones who do the ministry for the building up of the church. This verse very clearly says that pastors and teachers and church leaders equip all the saints in the congregation so that they might do the ministry that leads to the building up and the maturing of God's church. Now, we live in an age of professionalism, and so we just assume that everything is best done by the trained professional. We don't want to see the family doctor. We want to go to the specialist. We don't want to hire a carpenter. We want the residential flooring expert. We don't want to go see a counselor. We want to go to the woman with her PhD in adolescent addictive behaviors. And so it's easy for us to assume, hey, a pastor's got training. He should be the one to do the ministry because he can best equip uh, or he can best do all of the ministry in the church. And that's often the way we talk. But it's not the model of Ephesians chapter 4. The model of Ephesians chapter 4 is that pastors, teachers, and church staff equip all of the saints so that they minister to one another and lead to the building up of the body. And if you think about it, this makes sense. Think about all of the needs that any one of us has throughout the entire week to be encouraged, to be challenged, to be prayed for, to be comforted, to be warned. Is it even possible that any church of any size could hire enough staff to meet every single one of those ministry needs of all of the comfort and all of the encouragement and all of the building up that every one of its members would need throughout the week? Of course not. That's not even possible. I love Paul Tripp. Many of you know Paul Tripp, a pastor and teacher. He tells the story of a friend who called him up in a panic one day and said, Paul, Paul, I I met this guy on the street. He's out of a job. He's separated from his wife. He really needs help. Can I drive him to your house so you can help him? And Paul Tripp said, no, you may not. Paul Tripp said, but I will pray for you, and I will give you a few words of advice so that you can minister to this person because God has placed him in your life so that you can minister to him. And that is exactly the model of Ephesians 4. And Paul Tripp concludes this way. He says, God has a huge toolbox, and his principal tools are his children. Sadly, many people in the church do not see themselves this way. They think of ministry as something for the paid professional. Yet each of us, when we are adopted into the family of God, 
is also called to ministry, a call to be part of the good work of the kingdom in each other's lives. And isn't this our experience? Isn't so much of our comfort and encouragement and challenge come from the conversations and prayers of each other, not just from the sermons on Sunday morning? That's the model. And as we think about application, I think this verse calls each of us to be ready to minister to, encourage, comfort, and come alongside each other. Because the biblical model for the church is for us to be walking together as God's people all throughout life and ministering to one another throughout not just Sunday, but throughout our week. After all, Paul tells us in verse 16 that the whole body will grow when each part is working properly. The whole body grows together when we are all ministering to each other. You know, when I teach our communicants class for our seventh graders who are joining the class, one of my main points to emphasize as I talk to them about church membership is that if they walk up to the doors of this sanctuary on Sunday morning and their goal is to go to Sunday school, go to church, worship God, and go home, they don't understand what it means to be part of the church. And if they walk into those doors expecting to talk with their friends and the whole goal of their conversation is to talk about football, clothes, and food. They don't know what it means to be part of a church. Because imagine what the church would be like. Just just picture your Sunday morning for a second. If every single one of us walked into the doors of the sanctuary looking for ways to encourage and pray for and comfort and challenge those around them in their faith in Christ, we would all go home having been repeatedly built up by each other so that we would all be growing and encouraged and comforted in Christ. We would all go home having used the gifts Christ had given us and received the benefit and blessing of each other's gifts. We would go home with the joy of having lived in a recreated community, having a foretaste of the loving fellowship that we will have with each other and with our Savior in heaven. And it happens when we live together and encourage each other in Christ so that we are all built up in him to the glory of God, our Savior. Of course, this can be a challenge because how many of us really feel equipped and prepared to have what we need to say to each of our hurting brothers and sisters in Christ. And don't think that pastors are immune from this. We have all, haven't we, gotten into a situation and we think, I have no idea what to say to this person. How can I minister to them? But I was thinking about this this week as I was trying to use a wrench to loosen a bolt. And I thought, we're called to be tools. We're called to be tools of God's grace and God's word in people's lives. But wouldn't it be awfully silly if a wrench were to complain that it couldn't loosen a bolt because it didn't have any muscles to loosen the bolt? Well, of course, you would say, wrench, you don't have to have muscles. That's not your job. Your job is just to be the tool. Well, this is the comfort and encouragement we have. You and I don't have to change people. We are just called to be the tool that God's spirit is going to use in each other's lives. And when we are wondering, how could I ever do ministry in one another's lives? We need to remember that every gift that you and I have, the gifts of grace are given to us by the risen and resurrected Lord over all creation. He's the one who gave you these gifts and he's the one who is going to minister in us and through us for the benefit of the church. Well, finally, as we're facing this this doubt of how can I do this? How can I really minister 
to every each other in the church? How will I know what to say and how to meet one another's needs? I want to notice the second and short final observation from this passage. The second little detail we need to note is how to minister to one another. If you were to read throughout the New Testament, you would note that in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Peter, and here in Ephesians, the Bible lists dozens of different gifts that God has given his people. There's a huge variety of gifts that God has given to his people. But I think it's significant that here in Ephesians, in chapter 11, the gifts that Paul highlights as particularly equipping us for ministry are gifts related to teaching God's word. How are we equipped for ministry? We're equipped for ministry by those who are preaching and teaching God's word to us. And why is that important? Because it is God's word that leads to growth and change and comfort in people's lives. Verse 15 emphasizes the same thing. How does the body grow? By speaking God's truth in love. And we can say it this way. God's word is his chosen means to work change and growth in his people. And this is why, one of the reasons why it's so important to be under the preaching and study of God's word regularly, not just for our individual growth, but so that we will be equipped to minister God's word to each other. Now, of course, we're not just going to flippantly quote scripture at hurting people, but I encourage you to move towards each other in prayer and with scripture truth as the means to encourage one another. I think I would say, and many of you would probably say the same, that some of my most encouraging moments in life have taken less than five minutes. And it's when a brother or sister in Christ have come alongside me and spoken a word of truth from God's word and prayed for me. Jack Miller was a a pastor on the north side of Philly for many years, and he was renowned amongst his congregation as one of the best counselors and best uh, comforters uh, of anyone they knew, one of the best shepherds of his congregation that people had experienced. But the vast majority of Jack Miller's shepherding care came in 10-minute increments on Sunday mornings. And he said this, he said, when a member of my congregation needed comfort or encouragement or challenge, I would spend seven minutes listening to them. I would spend one minute giving them truth from God's word, and then I would spend two minutes praying for them. And this is the pattern and the model that made him one of the most renowned shepherds and ministers to his congregation. But isn't this a model any of us could follow? Can't we listen for seven minutes, give an encouraging word of God's truth for one minute, and then pray? This is what, this is what the church is. The church is God's people who have each been gifted with grace so that we could live together as an interdependent body using our different and varied grace for each other's growth in the gospel. Ephesians 4 is calling us to have the right model, the right instructions in mind. It's calling for each of us who have been gifted with grace by the risen Lord Jesus Christ to come under the teaching of the word in order to be equipped so that we will all be ready and prepared to do the work of ministry on a daily basis in each other's lives, that we might walk together, pointing each other towards our Savior, so that we will all be growing and maturing into the beautiful bride that Christ will come to take when he returns again. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This is God's manual for his church. Let's pray.
God, you are the God of all wisdom. And you have laid out this beautiful pattern whereby you have risen on high as Lord over all and poured out your spirit to enable us to be participants in ministry, to enable us to be part of your work of growth and maturity in each other's lives. We're completely incapable on our own, but your spirit is with us. Christ Jesus has gifted us and graced us. And so I pray that we would be eager and ready and willing to walk together in each other's lives, that we might encourage each other and point each other towards our Savior, that we as a church, that the whole church might grow in maturity, that the whole church might be ready for the return of its King and its Savior. We pray that you would work this in us in Christ's name. Amen.